But when it comes to doing commercial music that makes money, that's a business that you might want to buy a house, raise some kids, you know, put them through college, buy a new car. You know, if you want to do that kind of stuff, you've got to toe the line and you've got to become a performer. You've got to become an entertainer. You've got to be able to move around. You've got to look good. You've got to show up. You've got to get along with everybody in the band. And then if you can play, eh, that's something that's kind of on the side. Welcome to episode 110 of the Bay Shed Podcast. My name is Ryan Roberts. All right, what's up, folks? What's up, folks? Welcome to episode 110 of the Bay Shed Podcast. On the episode is Kenny Lee Lewis. I met Kenny Lee Lewis at the NAM show. Uh, man, when was the NAM show? It seems like it was all a blur. The NAM show back in May. No, this is May. <laughs> back in April. Uh, yeah, the NAM show was last month in April. Uh, I met Kenny, Kenny Lee Lewis at the LaBella booth at, uh, at NAM, and I will talk more about what was so fascinating to me about meeting Kenny and uh, a little bit more about his professional resume in just a second. All right, all right, all right. For regular listeners of the podcast, you may have noticed that uh, I had not released some episodes as regularly. I was just straight up, I got busy. I was so busy. Uh, and that's not the like, I'm so busy, check me out. No, it was just like busy, like this busy stuff. You know, there's a lot of things going on. Like one, I got in a car accident, you know, like that's not, that's not a check me out. Look how busy I am. <laughs> that's just like, oh crap. Now I got to deal with us, all this insurance uh, stuff and get a new car. So that happened. Then it was Nam, And then uh, I got called to do some, some fly dates. I was in Mexico City and Panama. So there was just a lot. There was a lot going on for like the last, I don't know, maybe month, month and a half. But but we're back. We're back, baby. Uh, yes. Yeah. Nam was cool. Nam was cool. That's where I met the guest, uh, Kenny Lee Lewis. Uh, like I mentioned, I will talk more about him in a second. The gigs in, in Panama and Mexico City were cool. I was playing with a Turkish flute player. <laughs> the only reason that's funny, the only reason that's funny is because it's not... It's that's not a like a normal gig. I get called for. I don't typically get called for the flute, the Turkish flute player uh, gigs. I'm not on the Turkish flute player scene. <laughs> uh, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun playing world music with uh, dudes who know how to play world music. Yeah, when we were in Panama, the drummer Chris Wabish was uh, singing Van Halen <laughs> pretty much nonstop while we were there, which was great and uh we should have that band should have worked up a cover of van halen's panama while in panama uh what else has been going on what else has been going on the bay shed academy has another uh there's the summer workshops coming up on june 24th um there'll be more information about that at the bayshedacademy.org also there's performance opportunities for upright players if you are in or around southern california um, there is going to be, uh, we're doing a couple of performance groups, well, two, two kind of tiers, at least two, depending on what the response is from the public. Maybe we'll add a third for like really advanced. Um, but there's uh, performance, performance opportunities for the youngsters. Uh, there's a, like a high school age, 
the double bass trio class we're playing all repertoire arranged for three double basses and then there'll be a collegiate level of the same type of vibe uh, so that's happening that'll be happening in uh, when is that happening that's happening in September uh, again more information about that at the baseshedacademy.org Kenny Lee Lewis is on the podcast Kenny Lee Lewis is a guitarist a bassist a producer a songwriter I don't want to say his main gig, but the gig he's had for uh, around 40 years has been the Steve Miller Band. Penny Lee Lewis has also worked with Bonnie Raitt, Eddie Money, Peter Frampton, Boss Skaggs, Brian Wilson, and Steven Stills. Um, yeah, he's all over the place. He's all over, the, really plugged in the music business, and he will talk about that. He will talk about the music business. As I mentioned, as I mentioned, I met Penny Lee Lewis at the NAMM show. We're both at the LaBella booth. So me and, me and Kenny were both there checking out some bases, and then he starts talking about this bass. Starts talking about this bass, guy. And this bass was incredibly captivating to me. After he tells me like a little bit about it, he shows me some pictures of it. I'm like, dude, you got to come on the podcast. You got to talk about this bass in the podcast. He's like, all right, yeah. So he sends me he sends me this Dropbox file with a bunch of pictures of the building process of this bass and some write some write ups on it and like letters of authenticity. But here's the base. Here's the base. The base is the Franklin Founding Father 5. It is his signature base. It is the Model 4F, right? Franklin Founding Father 5. Uh, it's a five-string base, obviously. That's the, that's the five at the end. Now, the Franklin Founding Father. Let's take a look at this portion. The body of the base is from a rafter from Benjamin Franklin's house, where Benjamin Franklin was born. Right, here's, here's the write-up that Kenny sent me on it. The body of this base was reclaimed from 500-year-old piece of spruce cut from a large beam from the house where Benjamin Franklin was born on January 17, 1709 at 1 Milk Street in Boston, Massachusetts. If you count the rings from the bottom left end, we see that the tree was at least 200 years old at the time it was harvested and cut. Um, now, I will have pictures on on youtube about this and like you know the video uh interview portion with some fly-in images so everybody can see it so definitely stop by the youtube channel for the base shit and check out these videos they'll also they'll also be online and in the show notes super super cool story super cool base super cool base uh again that is the franklin founding father five the kenny lee lewis signature and man, this is one one of a kind, one of a kind, and honestly, the best bass <laughs> I came across at the Nam show. Um, and here it is. Here's Kenny Kenny talking about it himself. Bassist, guitarist, producer, and songwriter Kenny Lee Lewis. Kenny, how you doing, man? I'm doing okay. Are we? Uh, are Are you gonna be okay today? With- yeah, I'm gonna be all right. I think I, I think I'm gonna make it through. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, I, I uh, didn't want you to have to, you know, do this while you were at school. I mean, no, I, I, no big I, deal. Teaching? Are you taking a class? Or oh no no no, I'm, I'm playing workshops here. Playing the workshop. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I play along for the students to play with. Okay. All yeah. right. So you've got a little studio there that you can use. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. little bit. Where are you at, man? Your studio looks great. This is my warehouse. I've got shit laying everywhere because I've been doing, <laughs> you know, just running in and out. And uh, I've been like working on 
you know, yard work and mixing uh, up and producing a, a couple of tracks I've been doing. And anyway, but I, I just haven't had time to clean up everything. So it's sure. just a mess. What kind of, what kind of things are you, uh, what kind of things are you producing? Um, I just produced a, uh, a track for a girl named Linda McKenzie. She's yeah. a writer out of uh, Nashville and she wrote a song about a year and a half ago called missing which dealt with the missing and murdered indigenous women issue that is all over North America. And um, we did a track for it. She did a video for it. it. Turned out so good that we had it nominated for a NAMI, which is the Native American Music Awards last year. And uh, I think she put it in the wrong category because she didn't win, but okay. it got a lot of accolades. In fact, we got a couple of gigs out of it up in Canada, which was nice. Oh, killer. Uh, this one is a song she wrote to honor Chief Joseph, who was the legendary chief of the Nez Pierce, or Purse as they say, Nez Pierce tribe hmm. up in Idaho, uh, back during the, you know, 150 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's called Spirit Horses, and I just mixed it yesterday, and she's all excited, and she's probably going to move forward to a video now. So what? hopefully this one will get in the right category, and we'll get uh, we'll win a NAMI next year. So Yeah, do you play on it also? Yeah, I played everything. Uh, she okay. played the acoustic guitar, basic track, and did a really great job. And uh, I just did everything else. Okay. We had a Native American friend come in. He played some hand drum and sang and, and uh, you know, kind of added a little na more Native American uh, flavor to it, which is really nice. But it's it's basically, you know, like a pop Americana rock country piece. Okay. It's, you know, very different. Very cool. Very cool. So, obviously, I mean, you know this. I met you at NAMM. Uh, and I know that you're playing with Steve Miller. How long? Talk uh, about how long you've been playing with Steve and how you got the gig. Okay, um, I've been playing with Steve for 41 years now. Uh, 42 years ago, as of 1981, uh, I think it was around September. Um, I was going for my third record deal with some friends, and we had been written a bunch of songs. One of which member of this particular group was a guy by the name of Gary Malibur very famous studio drummer and played on a bunch of big hits going all the way back to moon dance with van morrison oh, wow. back in the day and yeah, yeah. Uh, you know honey peter frampton jackson brown bonnie ray it okay. just tons of credits and uh he played on most of steve miller's hits okay. and so steve called one day while we were mixing uh we had eight tracks that we were going to like submit to get into record deal and steve called and he was dry looking for material and this was like like i said around september 81 and Gary came in from the phone call and we were all in the garage and he just said, hey, what do you think? Should we send our demos to Steve? He might record one of these. Yeah, and yeah. we went, okay. And so <laughs> we sent him all eight mixes and guess what? He took all eight songs. Really? So he cleaned us out. So we didn't have any project anymore. We didn't. Yeah, have... yeah, yeah. And he loved the masters so much that we'd recorded on an 80-8 TAC. In fact, I've got one sitting right over here um okay. with dbx he transferred those masters to 24 track he brought a truck over to our garage and continued mixing this record at capitol records and i didn't know him um of course i was a fan of his when i was a kid yeah, yeah. Uh, and then gave him my number and at some point he called me and said look i love your bass and guitar playing on all these tracks would you please come to capitol and help me finish this record and that's how i met him and that's how i got started working with him so we finished the record, came out before Christmas in 81, and didn't get any push from the label because at those days, payola was a thing, and he wouldn't pay it. Yeah. And 
we just didn't have any single support from Kapler or nothing. And the record came out in 82. We were rehearsing to go on a pretty pedestrian U.S. tour to try to promote the album, if you will. Right, right. And fortunately, his manager had negotiated, unbeknownst, I think, to even Steve, that he had a worldwide deal with Polygram Mercury. And Capital was just U.S. and Canada. Okay. So Polygram Mercury got a hold of it. They loved Abracadabra, the song that yeah. I helped produce, and it went on in Europe. And okay. so we changed our whole tour around, and we went to Europe and became number one, and we sold five million copies and came to the U.S. and went number one th- almost three times here. And I co-wrote three of the songs on the album and helped co-produce you know, the record. As I said, I didn't get credit on that album, but I did get credit on the next album, which was Italian X-Ray. But I was a new guy, so you know, he didn't want to get too... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. didn't want to be with the credits, you know. <laughs> but anyway, that's how it started. And so in 82 is when he asked me to quit my studio um, musician business that I was doing very well in, yeah. in Los Angeles as a bass player. Right. <laughs> and uh, he uh, invited me to join the band and come out and su- support the, the tour. I didn't have to audition or anything because I was already on the record. Right, right, right. Yeah. So what were those eight tunes? What were... Um, they were, um, um, well, I mean, Cool Magic was the second single mm-hmm. on the album, which I wrote. And uh, I brought Gary in to kind of help me with some of the lyrics. So he's a co-writer on that. And the flip side of the single in Europe was uh, Never Say No, same situation. Uh, we also had another guy named John Mishasaro that came in. And uh, and then we had another one called, um, God, I can't remember now. Uh, anyway, there was three. Okay. And then the the other uh, five were songs that Gary and John had written with Lonnie Turner, the former bass player for Steve Miller, and Greg Douglas, the guy that wrote uh, uh, Jungle Love, along with Lonnie. And, uh, and so they were between those four people, we got eight titles on, yeah. on that record. Now, Abercadabra itself was a song left over from the album prior. It was a track, and he had lyrics for it. It was called Macho Children. Okay. And it was just awful. And we just said, you know, come on, Steve. You know, this track is great. Don't throw it out. Because he wanted to throw it out. And we said, this track is great, man. It's got a really cool hump. Gerald Johnson played bass. Gary uh, 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 Byron Allred was playing uh, keyboards on it. And we just said, you know, just let's just write some new lyrics. So I was actually supposed to write with him. And he ended up doing it himself. Uh, He saw Diana Ross had some celebrity ski thing going on in Idaho. Yeah. And he got inspired. He always had a crush on her. <laughs> and, uh, he had done Hullabaloo with her in the Four Tops back in 65 with yeah. Barry Goldberg, with the Barry, the Goldberg Miller Blues Band or whatever. And so uh, he came down the hill and went in the bar. And, of course, he wasn't drinking then. He actually had just cleaned up, got some napkins, and he wrote – Oh. I want to reach out and grab you, and he just kept going. You know, black panties in an angel's face is Diana Ross, you know. <laughs> so that's how that happened. So he didn't know if that was going to be a hit or not. We just put the record together, and the next thing we know, uh, like I said, Polygram Mercury in Europe loved that track. It didn't sound like anything Steve had ever done before. Yeah, yeah. When that hit, it hit with a whole new younger audience in Europe that – thought he was some new artist right right after all those hits he had you know so it's very interesting uh piece of uh 
Genesis, it coming back over the United States. And then, of course, it started playing like crazy here. And then Capital, of course, you know, took all the credit, took pictures <laughs> with us with the Platinum Records, you know, like, didn't we do a great job? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was well, all them. Okay, so that's how that's how you got the gig. And then you've been with him for 41 years. Now, how yes. do you, while being on the road with the same act for so long, how do you stay engaged in the music? What would you tell, like, what would some advice be to, like, guys that are just getting into road work? about how to stay engaged after you've been playing the same material for so long? Well, in this case, uh, we have a heritage act, which has been okay. around for five years, you know, and Steve's music is kind of become an American pastime. So it's yeah. a little hard to compare this to what a, a young musician might be doing if he joins a new band that's trying to break, you know what I mean? So in our case, even with Abracadabra going right out, we were playing a lot of the old hits, you know, and Rock Me and Fly Like an Eagle and Joker, all that stuff. Yeah. So we already had immediate um, response that was very, very positive. The yeah. new songs, eh, you know, the people were kind of like, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Nice, you know, when are you going to play Jungle Up? You know? Yeah, yeah, they want to hear the hits. They want to hear the Joker. classic yeah. rock act when Abracadabra came out, which is interesting. That was 41 years ago. Wow. 42, yeah, 41, actually. So... That was our last single that we've ever had as, as a hit. But the concert industry for Heritage Acts, as you know, is still very lucrative. And the baby boomers still show up, you know? Mm -hmm. And and even our younger audience that uh, we got from the Deadheads and then the Fish People and anybody who likes Jam Bandy, Happy Go Lucky Americana will come to our shows, you know? So we kind of get all those, plus the old hippies that liked his records prior to the Joker which right. were five. And okay. those records were a lot different than anything that came later. So yeah. he's got like three tiers of audience. The old the old hippie dippy bunch, the kind of middle ground people that kind of like the greatest hits that came out on CD, all those college kids. And then the Abracadabra kids. And then all the kids of those people <laughs> yeah. that heard those songs when they were growing up in their house. Sure. You know? So it's almost four layers, you know? And so they end up showing up. And uh, to answer your question, um, our joy comes from the response from the audience. All, sure. Obviously, we're playing the same songs over again. We we're basically a tribute act yeah. for a guy by the name of Steve Miller. We just happen to have a guy named Steve Miller who's the lead singer. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of what the it's Steve like, Miller Band know? is a cover band of the Steve Miller Band. Yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. I mean, I'm, I was the new guy 41 years ago, you know, so yeah. now we've got a bunch of other new guys. And so we're basically just uh, servicing the catalog. And the catalog precedes the man, which mm -hmm. is an interesting situation because Steve's songs are so indelible. And it's not, he's not like a personality like a Mick Jagger or, right. or, 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 you know, like a Steven Tyler, where you immediately recognize him. You think about all of his divorces and his drug things and yeah, yeah. his cameos, he's done in movies and television. He's never done any of that. So he's yeah. almost like kind of invisible. I mean, he could walk in a mall and a lot of people don't know who he is. Sure. Which is interesting because his music is bigger than him. So right. we service that catalog. So that is what we do. And of course, immediate response. It's great. We get a lot of feedback. Um, as, as a performer entertainer, I put myself in the shoes of that who is giving service to the community. That zip code that day is getting a service. I'm a part of that delivery system. Yeah. So if I'm in a new band, which would be something that maybe you were talking about with you, people that you're dealing with at school and stuff. You know, if you have a hit, that's great. You're going to get that response. But if you don't have a hit, you, you, you're you just going to be playing that playlist that you right. have until something catches. 
And then just like with all bands that come around, you know, and you go through all the histronics of being in a band like I did in the past, you know, you eventually might have two or three more hits if if you can work that out these days. See, sure. in the old days, we had label support. They right. put money behind us. Even when we weren't a hit, they go, well, let's see what the next one does. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. If you don't hit right off the bat now, it's like, yeah, thanks a lot. We spent our money and we're going to move on. You know, yeah. so it's a little different. Plus, we don't get paid the same way anymore. We get paid for live performances. We don't get paid so much for, for a little bit for radio, terrestrial radio is still around. And then there's the streaming thing, which doesn't pay anything like what we used to get when we had mechanical royalties of right. unit sales of physical product. You know, that was something that went away with Napster and everything else. Right. And, and the advent of, of, of streaming. So, you know, we've all gotten over that now. The old guard is finally, if you read any Bob Lesset's newsletters, he's always beating us up old guys by saying, you know, you guys got to grow up and come into the future. It doesn't matter that you're not getting all these royalties anymore because you're promoting your live shows, you know, right. and that's where you make your money. It seems so, like Steve's music is still pretty uh, indoctrinated or absorbed by, you know, mainstream radio. Like those are hits that are just timely. Right. But only on classic rock format. Yeah, you know, yeah. Which, which is, thank God, still a thing. Yeah, yeah. On XM, you know. So anyway, uh, to answer your question, I'm still, still skirting around it. You just have, as a player, as a young player, you just have to realize that you've been given a gift. If you have the gift, you know, and that's the other thing, too. you got to have this gift that you're given yeah. prior to being born. It's just in your DNA. Yeah, you can practice a lot. Yeah, you can learn how to read. Yeah, you can learn all the scales and play all the chords and the substitutions. And it's still not the gift. The gift is something that communicates between your fingers, if you're a player, or your voice, and the listener. Mm -hmm. And they immediately feel something. Maybe they don't know much about music, but they can feel what they feel. And if you have that gift, they feel it. Yeah. They feel it right off the bat, you know, and so your job, because you were given this gift prior to being born, is kind of like you've been given like a, a job. You've been given this mission to go out and share that gift to bring joy to the flock, if mm -hmm. you will. And that's your job. Your yeah. job is to bring joy to the flock, not to please yourself, not to give yourself some little accolades and like, you know, I'm, I'm, I played so fast and I played so many notes and I had my chords and it was so great, you know. That is something you can do with your friends on the weekend at an open mic night if you want. Right, right. But when it comes to doing commercial music that makes money, that's a business that you might want to buy a house, raise some kids, you know, put them through college, sure. buy a new car. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you want to do that kind of stuff, you've got to toe the line and you've got to become a performer. You've got to become an entertainer. You've got to be able to move around. You've got to look good. You've got to show up. You've got to get along with everybody in the band. And then if you can play, Eh, that's something that's kind of on the side. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. You, know? Sure. you know what I mean? Because yeah. that's how you do it. And then that's just one facet of the diamond. Yeah. You've got to learn how to teach. You've got to learn how to design a product. You've got to learn how to demo it. You've got to do retail. You've got to sell it. You've got to go, you know, I mean, you've got to do a lot of different facets of the industry to cut your diamond the way yeah, it's supposed I like, to shine. I like that analogy. Oh, one facet is just not enough. You've got to... Yeah. To be noticed and to be recognized by an industry that's very competitive, you got to shine like a diamond. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great analogy of having all the different uh, sides right. and angles. You know, and even with within one side, there's a lot and of guess angles. Guess who's more of a diamond? 
Pressure. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> under pressure, and that's what makes it become as hard as it does. Yeah. So you're going to be under a lot of pressure in this business. You're going to be under a lot of pressure to deliver. You got to be able to bring it each time. You got to practice. You got to be, I mean, you know, when somebody points you, goes, play a solo. You know, it's like you got to like be, you got to be ready like a year ago, right, you know, right. for that solo that might last 16 bars. Yeah. Yeah. On a- recording or sitting in or you know because you never know who's in the audience say here you go i like him i, I want to put him on my team yeah, yeah you know basically how it happens it's kind of word of mouth you know you can do all these you know TikTok and instagram blah 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 that's all fine and good those are you know ways to you know promote your brand a little bit but you still most of the time when you get gigs because you've met somebody in the flesh they've heard you in real time you've moved them emotionally and when you talk to them, you are clear, concise, and humble, yeah. and ready to be available. Yeah, yeah. How are how are some ways you've navigated uh, the changing of the music industry? Like, I think it's all still the same. It's just presented a lot different. You know, of things you were talking about of the pressure and preparedness, and you know, playing is not even at the top of the list most of the time. All those things have probably always existed, but the way that they're interfaced with have maybe become different uh, as technology increases and social media and those things you talked about. How have you personally dealt with that? Well, I've learned, I learned how to sing very early oh. in my career, which is, you know, what I get paid for. I don't get paid to play bass and guitar with a Steve Miller band. I get paid to sing mm. and sing in harmony and blend and not try to be a lead singer inside the stack. Right, you right. Know? learn a technique to become like a horn player you got to fit into the stack yeah you got to know where your placement is you got to be able to breathe you got to do vocal warm-ups every day you got to do them you know at sound check you got to do them before the gig you know that is really important um of course writing is another thing that'll make you shine a little more not necessarily the most important thing but if you write you'll bring you something else to the table yeah, yeah. you know you're increasing your value a little bit more yeah, with the yeah. DAW weight is now everybody should be able to write. I mean, we used to have to play use tape. Yeah. You know, it was, <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to buy a reel of tape because they were all out of stock. You know, right. look around to find a reel of tape. I mean, it was crazy. And uh, you know, and then of course, you know, editing and and fixing notes and all that. We, we couldn't do that. We had to be great immediately in in one or two takes. You yeah. Know? Uh, so it's really easy now for people to sound great on DAW. There's no excuse for people not to write, you know. I mean, when you look at these four chord songs that everybody's getting hits on, you know, these loops, you know, Ed Sheeran, you know, not, you know, since it's been in the news lately, I'll just bring him up. Look at what he's been able to do with four chords. I know. You know, and take a little ditty over the top, you know. Right. I mean, the guy fills up stadiums by himself with a paddleboard, <laughs> you know, and it's like he has, nobody, he has nobody he has to pay, you know. He just right. pays his manager and his agent, you know. You know, and that's great. You know, and if you could take that pathway, uh, you could buy a house and a car and put your sure. kids through college. You yeah. Know? So that is something that you need to think about. Um, and then, of course, like I said earlier, you got to learn to get along with everybody. You yeah. Know? I mean, if you can't get along with folks, if you're not a solo act, like, I mean, Ed could be, you know, he could be a dickhead and he'd still be as successful as he is because he doesn't really have to answer to anybody. Sure. sure you sure. know, but I think he's a pretty good what I've seen, yeah, he gets along with people and, and he does all right and stuff. So people want him on their teams too. 
so you got to you got to get along. You got to be humble. You got to realize that your gift that I mentioned is something that was given to you as a gift. It's a gift. Right. It's not something you yourself on your own and made it molded it the way. No, you were given a gift, and that's why it connects. Yeah. You know, and if you don't have the gift, you can still play act at it. And you might be successful. There's a lot of musicians I could tell that are very popular and very successful right now that I consider they don't have the gift. They just became clinicians yeah. of a art form that allowed them to present it in a clinical way that makes it so it's acceptable on the critical level, you know? And it's like, is that really enough to move me? Not me. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's luckily a big world and if people are looking to engage with music on that level then there's people out there that are delivering that product you know right. if, if you know i think i'm more aligned with what you're talking about is i want to i want to be moved by something first and foremost right. before i'm impressed uh by technique i want to be emotionally moved by it so knowing that that's how i listen and what i'm listening for it, it weeds out a lot of people that you know maybe i should be interested in that i'm completely not interested because I don't have right. that emotional payoff. Um, we got to right. talk about it, man. We got to talk about the bass. We got to talk about the bass. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a, it was an interesting project. Uh, just encapsulated real quick. Um, some friends of mine in uh, Rhode Island uh, made a Telecaster for me as a gift. And, uh, okay. it came and I was like, wow, I was just blown away. It was real heavy. Come to find out that it was a piece of pine that was a plank in a shipwreck that was underwater for like several hundred years <laughs> off yeah. the car New England and it got reclaimed and they made bodies out of it and they made me this telecaster with parts and it you know it sounded great and I was really impressed and the guy that made it was a guy named uh, Riverside Vinny Vincent Goulart was his name he makes guitars he's also into flooring and sculpting and he does all this stuff with marble and he's he's really qu quite an interesting guy but we got in touch with each other. I thanked him for the guitar. And then he said to me, he goes, well, well, you don't have a bass. He goes, you ever had a signature bass? I go, come to think of it, no. I mean, I've been playing bass for years in the studios and then touring with Steve. And I got a couple, you know, mama pop ones that said, yeah, you know, we should make you a bass. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they, they wouldn't just do it gratis. No. I'm not popular. I'm not that well known. You know, I just happen to be a journeyman blue collar musician that works for a guy named steve miller which is a, a a great position to be in but a lot of people don't know who i am you know so nobody offered to do it so i said well you know i, I think i might want to make my own signature base yeah. so he says well i got this wood that i just got from this company called j mark or something like that i can't remember the name of it i actually you actually have the certificate that i made. yeah i do i was reading that earlier today proves that these this wood came from a house in Boston on one Milk Street, Boston, that was being renovated with steel, where the beams are, these old wooden beams were removed. And it just so happened to this house was where Ben Franklin lived as a child and actually might have been born in this house. Yeah. Uh, I talked to a couple of experts. They say it was a couple of blocks, a couple of doors down. But either way, he lived in this house. Yeah, the, cer the certificate by the organization from northeast reclaimed wood people say it was he was born there they claim right. that he was born there yeah really big piece of spruce mind you that you know you don't usually get a piece this big plus it was about 200 years old when they were using it yeah you yeah. know so had a really big spruce tree in 1709 or three <laughs> or and made this beam that went in this house 
you know, before we even had our independence, you know, and uh, this particular tree um, was this this beam was removed. And so the reclamation company got a hold of it. Then Vin, Riverside Vinny got a hold of it. He cut me by my request a jazz based body with P based five string wells mm -hmm. for the pickups. I said, I want something different, you know, so let's go with the jazz based body because I always play B based. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a nice, what is that, like a seafoam green? All for the 70s and 80s because that was the, the base of choice for doing pop rock stuff in those yeah. days. I mean, even the jazz bass was not used that much. I mean, I think the bass player for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, that was one of the first times I'd ever seen one. And then, of course, Larry Graham had mm -hmm. one. And that's when he started slapping and using the rear pickup, which yeah. is a story we can get into later. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, P bass wells, five string. Because with Steve, I need a five string because he's changing keys from time to time. Yeah. And I want to be able to have a low E flat or a low D to, you know, fill out the sound of the band, have some subs and stuff, you know. Yeah. So that's what he did. He cut me this body, just rough cut it, sent it to me. I looked at it and went, okay, this is going to be a lot of work. And so I decided to put this base together as just a, an art project that I would hang on the wall. Okay. You know, like, here, just yeah. for people to go, oh, that's kind of cool. And I tell the story. And uh, So I never bought any real expensive parts. I just bought like a, a Japanese maple replacement fender five-string neck on Amazon. Yeah. It even had tuners installed when I got it. And I bought some cheap bridge and electronic parts. Uh, MJ at, um, at um, uh, Maricela Juarez, she's really sweet. She sent me a, quarter, a set of quarter pounders that okay. she uh, wound herself. And because uh, we have we have sort of like a relationship with Seymour, which is great. And so I had all the parts, you know. And so I just, I went, what can I finish? And I went, oh, I'll use tongue oil. So I got some tongue oil. And I did this base just as a, a simple little project. And it turned out so great yeah. that just went you know what i think i'm going to take this out and see if our manager sound guy likes this because our manager is our front of house mixer too okay He's pretty creepy. but he likes p bases he likes yeah. it just a plain passive p bass. he grew up with them like i did and he knows how to put it in the track and mix it blah 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 so um i brought it out and he was a little reticent at first because you know it's pretty humble looking if you have that picture that you showed you know it's yeah, yeah. Just natural finish no pick guard you know and he said, you know what? This thing sounds really good. Nice. And so I don't like five-string basses that are real wide at the 12th fret. I don't have hands. I'm really a guitar player, too. I play both equally well. I played guitar for Steve for 28 years. Okay. That's what he hired me as, oh. as a guitar player. Okay. Yeah, you can see all kinds of videos all over YouTube when you play guitar. And then about 14 years ago, our bass player broke his ankle in four places in the middle of a tour. And Steve remembered that I played bass. He goes, you know, can you just sub for him while he's getting well? And, you know, we'll just go with me on guitar for now. And I did that. And when I got on that P bass, you know, and started playing with the drummer, who was the great drummer, Gordy Knudsen, uh, we just locked. Yeah, yeah. And because P bass is the sound of Steve Miller's records. Because uh, our former bass player was not using a P bass. He was, he was like a music man, Lakeland situation. Okay. And it just didn't have that punch. Yeah, yeah. There's something about a P bass, where those pickups and where they're split and where they land on the nodes on the string, there's a bass drum kind of a punch that you get that I think you know about. Sure. That, you know, you just don't get on a, on a split pickup bass. Right. Like a, a jazz bass gets close. I, I've had a bass called a Cot, K-O-T at some point, that had some re-round Bartolini's, and it kind of got that punch. Okay. But it wasn't quite the same. 
So when I switched over to the Sandbergs that I got later, which were just like fenders, but much more roadworthy, that kind of brought that sound back. But to make a long story short, when I got on that seat and I started playing yeah, Steve said, dude, you got to stay in the air. You know, it's just locking, you know. So I unfortunately, a very good friend of mine, and I just, you know, I felt really bad about the situation, but they just said, we want you to stay here and we're going to get another guitar player. And I went, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So I had to train the new guitar player on guitar so I could play the bass. You know, so I did that. And that was about 14. And this was this was the founding father base. Would you switch? So there's Franklin Five. It's founding father Franklin Five. I called the four F. Yeah. Founding father Ben Franklin. Uh, Franklin Five. So it's yeah. founding father Franklin. The four. five string Franklin's wood. <laughs> yeah. And so I put a fifty cent silver nineteen fifty four coin in the front of it because that was my birth year. I put a decal on there of him, and then I I signed it. So I made my signature bass that I'd never gotten before. <laughs> my signature bass, and we're using it right now. That's I just awesome. From the Jazz Fest in New Orleans, and we just played uh, in, in, in in Nashville. Sounds great. Everybody loves it. So it's just a fluke that it turned out the way it did. And the amount of money I put into it, it was under 200 bucks. The whole thing? Damn. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't hardly anything to put it together. The body was free. The yeah. pickups were free. You know, so anyway. Yeah, I remember was, when we were at the show, I think we were at the uh, LaBella booth talking about bases, and you started talking yeah, about this bass, and I'm like, dude, this is the best thing here. Show any of them, you know, when you put this all together, but yeah. it might be interesting for some people to see uh, some of the genesis of how it all went down. Because I am a luthier. I was a luthier at 17. Okay. Uh, I was still just coming out of high school. I got trained by a really great guy up in Sacramento where I grew up, and I was doing frets and finishes back then. Okay. Okay, did you kind of stay in that in that territory doing just kind of fret work or did you get into building acoustic instruments at all no i just did it when i was really young and then later on in life i just worked on all my own guitars yeah never needed anybody else to do work on my guitars because you know i do it right i would do a fret job right now i don't have all the tools but uh i can do everything else okay and i can even spread you can do say that again (laughs) yeah i i remember spraying lacquer back in 73 when i was doing it you okay. know 72 i think 72 was still legal and I was <laughs> yeah. black. shop in in, uh, in sacramento it was pretty funny nice do you do you play the telly the telly that he sent you is that do you ever play that oh yeah yeah i mean uh i've lent it to a friend now otherwise i'd show it to you but yeah uh, uh i played it a little bit you know uh, i think i took it to one gig it was so heavy so the problem is when this pine got compressed under the ocean it became as heavy as ebony. It's yeah. how heavy this guitar is. And it's pine. Right. It's a pine with grain and everything. In it, but it weighs a ton. Yeah. And it has a lot of low end. It sounds pretty cool, but it's just too heavy to, to sling around for me anyway. We'll be back right after this. All right, what's up, folks? A new thing I'm doing. A new thing I'm doing is offering up the middle of the show to you. I want this to be a podcast that builds a community, and I want it to be a podcast where you can not only hear, but be heard. So, how this works, go to thebaseshed.com backslash podcast, click on the button that says give me a shout out, have all the information there, uh, email me with whatever you want me to talk about, I'll run an ad for you, whatever it is. You got a new record coming out? Let me know about it. You got some dates you want to plug? Cool. Let me know about it. 
Instagram handles, YouTube handles, Spotify, whatever it is, whatever you got going on. You want me to give you a shout out? Absolutely, I'd love to. I not only want to give you a shout out, but I want to go check it out myself. I want to know what you guys are up to. And I want the community to know what you're up to. So go to thebayshed.com backslash podcast, get a shout out. All information will also be included in the monthly newsletter. Excellent, sir. So is the uh, the Founding Father 5, that's the main That's the main road axe? Founding Father uh, Franklin 5. Yeah, yeah. That's the... <laughs> that's the main that's the main one you take out and tour with that's what i call it the frank the founding father franklin five that's great that's great uh what else were we just talking about you said something that was interesting sandbergs you were talking about sandberg bases yeah, I, when i was uh, you know first getting back to when i started playing bass for steve i i, I had my i had a carbon that was a five string that was pretty nice and had like bunny brunel system and you know it sounded really good uh, but it was mine, and I didn't feel like taking it on the road. So I said, Steve, I want to get a bass. So I went to NAM, and, I, and I've always been really good friends. In fact, Music Man is made right here in San Luis Obispo, where I live. I've always been really good friends with, you know, Sherwood first, being involved with uh, bands with him, uh, rest in peace, and then his yeah. brother, Erling, of course. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll use a Stingray, because they sound pretty good. And uh, they had a, I went to NAM, and they had a vintage uh, reissue five-string stingray, and in those days, they weren't cutting five-string necks. They were just taking a four-string neck, stingray neck, putting five slots on the nut, and putting five saddles in, so the neck was really skinny. That's too close. That's way too close. Like I said, I don't like a a bass, but this was just a little too close. Yeah. I played that for one tour, and it sounded pretty good, and uh, I went to the cot that I saw the next NAMM show, which is really cool sound of bass with the rewound Bartolini's. It was kind of like a jazz bass look, but it was real retro and it was all kind of aged looking. Okay. It had a, a wangy neck on it. It was something exotic. And uh, it sounded really good. It was so easy to play. But unfortunately, it was just a little un, or unroadworthy. We got it out there with all the different humidity and cold temperatures and warm temperatures and dry, you know, in the desert, you know. And it just didn't hold up. Okay. Uh, so we let that go, and then that's when I found the next NAM show. I found the Sandberg line, which I was very happy with. My friend Mike Van Tyne, who's in the bass industry, uh, hit me to those. And at that time, they were making Fender knockoffs, yeah. and they hadn't gotten the cease and desist letter. So I got <laughs> the last Fender-looking ones. But, I mean, all the parts on them were real stealth. You know, it was really well built, uh, held up great. The, the active EQ Worked really well, although at that time we started incorporating more of those robot lights that have the motors in them with the solenoids. Yeah. And if anywhere near you, when you've got like high end boosted on like active EQ, they're going to pick up that solenoid. Mm-hmm. You'll have this little high, little like a dentist drill way up high yeah. for your pickups, no matter how well it's shielded. So we just started going passive with the Sandbergs. Okay. So when I built this space and brought it out just as a fluke, uh, we were already on a passive system because this is a passive base, of course. I mean, but right. those quarter counters have got big magnets and it's pretty powerful, you know. Yeah, and uh, so that's how that genesis happened. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was specifically interested because I'm I'm looking to get a Sandberg actually. So it's interesting that you brought them up because I've been researching them pretty heavily. They're, well, they, I think they have their own pickups. If I'm yeah. not mistaken, and um, now they're not doing the Fender look anymore because they can't. You know. Right. But, you know, with a longer horn on the top, like a jazz bass, 
it's actually sits a little nicer. I mean, that's the reason why I asked for the jazz bass body because the P bass, the horn, is not quite as pronounced forward as the jazz bass. It might be an inch less. Yeah. And so your bass tends to be a little more, uh, it, it, it kind of like lays, it kind of like wants to straighten out a little bit. Right. You know, so when you get that horn out a little farther, it, it, you can let go of it and it just sits right where you want it to be. Yeah, it stays balanced. Yeah. Uh, but you were happy with the pickups? Did Now, have you played a Sandberg with the Sandberg pickups at all? I played them with both. I think the first generation I had was another brand that they were using. I can't remember what I want to say. The D. DiMarzio? Kind of, no, it was, a, it was a German brand. Okay. It was not their brand. And, you know, big magnets. And they, they sounded really good. And then I think the next generation one I got, because I got I had this white one, the California Vintage Special or whatever. And then the next one I got, which was an ash one that was a little lighter, that's the one I still have kept. And that one, I think, is their own brand. And it, it still sounds great, you know. Like I said, I just play it passive. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, you have to kind of lower them a little bit so you don't blow up the preamp. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's what I was looking at. Some of them... Uh... Some of them were look. I was looking at earlier today. I think are only active, and I don't believe they don't have a lot of information on their website about well, what the I think about the twelve fret on the Sandberg is that it wasn't too wide. Well, the right. thing I think about fenders is when you get a five, Fender five string, they're really big at the twelve fret, really yeah. wide. You know? and, and they do that to keep the spread of the strings, and I get that. But I mean, unless you're some big guy with a catcher's mitt for a hand. <laughs> um, Unless you have a hand like a catcher's mitt or something, you know, to, to get around that spread, right. you know, when you go up high and stuff, you know, to play like high filth, you know, uh, it's it's difficult for me to get up that high. So the Sandberg was a little closer to like what like an, Ab, an Ibanez is. Because okay. you know, if you ever played an Ibanez five string, they're, they're pretty narrow at the 12th. They're probably. pretty, yeah. I would always tell students, like, if you're going from four to five, Ibanez is a great bass to start with. It is. Yeah. Before but, you really get kind of comfortable with that and then decide on the string spacing you like and 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 what i did is i just i just didn't bother me with getting that brand because like i say uh the sandberg was the look that i wanted it looked more fender like it looked like the retro band that i'm in yeah i didn't look into modern right you know boutique yeah i mean it's a classic rock band you know right right yeah so anyway uh, but yeah, this one I'm playing now is real organic. Yeah. It's all, <laughs> it's, the thing that's interesting is it's all one piece. It's a one piece of spruce. Yeah. So there's no joinery anywhere. And so the, the wood, not only is it 500 years old or something, it has this incredible resonant quality to it. Sure. It's, no, it's, yeah. not, it's not ash, it's spruce. And I, don't, and I think people don't make bases with spruce because you can't get a piece big enough or you'd have to glue it all together. You know? Right. Right, um, well, very cool, resonant, aged, ancient piece of wood. That's I love that story, man. When you're telling that story at Nam, I'm just like, dude, let me see a picture of it right now because that yeah. is that is the coolest thing at the Nam show. Like, forget all these bases, like that's the most interesting base right. in the room. Now, are you going to use some of those pictures? Oh yeah, room? yeah, absolutely. I'm going to fly them in on. The... When you see these pictures, which I haven't seen yet, yeah. you know, you'll see how I was able to kind of put this all together. And I had to do a lot of work to get it to be just right. But because I'm a luthier, I was able to do it. What I was going to ask something else. Oh, how long did it take you to put all that together, to build? How did I do the picture? The, uh, no, to assemble the base. How long did that take? How long? Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to say a couple of weeks. Oh, that's not bad at all. Uh, yeah, I think it was just before COVID that I did it. Okay. Uh, 
might have been during COVID. I can't remember now. It's that'd been be a, a while. That'd be a fun COVID project. When you look at the pictures, it'll have dates, I'm sure, encrypted. So you'll be able yeah, to Yeah, I actually have them right here. Let me. I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, I would say probably about two weeks. Okay. You know, my time, you know, because I had to do the tongue oil, multiple uh, coats of tongue oil. And you have to let it dry and you have to steel wool it and you have to do it again and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to put polyurethane on it. It was too cool to do that. Mm-hmm. So I'd use tongue oil so it would be more resident. And I couldn't blow lacquer because we're in California. So, you know, right. I did the tongue and it turned out really well. Yeah. I think, yeah, it looks fantastic. And then what's your, what's your amp situation? The what now? What, uh, what rig are you playing it through? What's, what are you, what's your amp? Well, interesting you bring that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, when I'm when I'm here, check this out. I'm going to put this in my lap. You're not going to believe this. This is 22 pounds. Oh, fiber. yeah. It's made from a carbon fiber fighter jet thing. It's Italian. It's called an Aero GR. Yeah. Aero. 500 watts. I'm going to buy an extension cabinet for this. Nice. When I'm live in town. That's the one because I just picked it up. That's the head and everything. Yeah, that's 20, a combo amp for 22 pounds. When you add the other cabinet, it goes to four ohms. It goes to 800 watts. Ah, that's insane. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. You don't have to have some big heavy bass amp anymore. But with Steve, when I started with him, I was on SVT and GK and a couple sure. other products. Eventually, he got tired of having to fight the bass sound coming up through the mic stand and coming up through his mm. leg on the deck. So we tried using little suspending things and everything. Eventually, he just said, you know what? Go direct. I don't want any bass amp on stage. <laughs> really? Correct. And one of the reasons why this knuckle here, I'm going to show yeah. two fingers. See that knuckle here? Yeah. A little bigger than that one. Sure. Just because I'm bone on this. Because in order to play that bass as hot as I do in the house with these huge shows we do, I have to have pretty high action with pretty big strings. Because mm. we can't have it rattling going on or any kind of weird shit because i'm so loud in the mix that if you hear that it's like really loud you know the, yeah. the, the you know whatever you get from the frets and stuff so i've been playing this bass that's another reason why i made this bass is that the sandbergs even when i brought the action down as far as i could you know and, and just had just a slight relief it was still killing my fingers you know because really? uh, so, i'm using like 45 through 135 okay you know, so it's a pretty big and I'm using like a 110 on the E. Yeah, you yeah. know, I'm using like an, an 85 or a 90 on the A. But it's a 135 on on the B string. These are big strings, you yeah. know. And it's like around you know, all night long. You have to have a lot of pressure. Get rid of that. That's right. <laughs> no, no, um, yeah. uh, so that is another reason why um, I'm I'm having a problem, you know, with my thumb, my 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 fingers i i can't move air so i have to use my future sonic inner ear monitors to get my bass out so pull out the second yeah okay uh so anyway uh sorry about that yeah no worries no worries but anyway he didn't want the bass competing with the chest sound of his voice he didn't want to hear all that bass so in his mix he didn't have a lot of low end on my bass it's a little more mid-rangey because he wants to hear the chest of his own voice Mm. in his because that's that's the sound yeah he wants to hear so he didn't want a bass competing with that, you know. So okay. I go direct. And so I got this thing called the Basics. It's a English designed little pedal that's kind of like a neve on the floor that I can do the shelving EQ and a compressor with if I needed. And I could switch in and out different bands on it and stuff. Okay. It doesn't have a speaker simulator. It doesn't have a tube cylinder because I tried using a tube 
pedal and all that stuff and the tubes would fail and everything right. I, mean, I had something that was like dependable every minute at every hour no matter what the conditions yeah and this things that has given me that so i i have that in my monitors not everybody else is hearing it but i've got a thing that is making me feel like i'm getting the sponginess of a little bit of a preamp compression compression yeah and a little air okay and that's how i'm able to get my bass sound uh, through these things so to answer your question there is no amp <laughs> right, right right yeah <laughs> excuse me uh i mean that's, that's kind of convenient you know just kind of nice there's less gear and not that you're lugging around your own gear, but an old venue, like there's a place we play in uh, New Hampshire. It's called the Casino, and it's in Hampton Beach. I mean, Zeppelin played there. A bunch of other people played nice. there. It's very famous, uh, and it's upstairs, and it's an old dance floor. So the, the wood on the stage and the wood on the dance floor is designed to be kind of flexible. Yeah, yeah. So play there, I get the subwoofers coming through the stage. Which of course drives Steve crazy, but man, I can feel it in my legs for the first time. I'm I'm playing bass. I'm going, wow, this because <laughs> I can actually feel the vibration, which is really cool. yeah. Um, in addition to the project you were producing that you mentioned at uh, at the beginning, what else do you have coming up? Um, well, we're we're going to be heading back out on uh, June 21st okay. um, with Steve. Yeah. We're going to be taking a swing through. Uh, you know the Midwest. We're going to be doing some uh, Texas dates. Uh, we're going to be doing some dates up in Canada, and then eventually we'll be doing you know the South, and then we'll eventually ended up in uh, the West Coast. You know, uh, Red Rocks, um, Salt Lake City, nice. in California, all the way up to Washington and all oh, that stuff. So, cool. so we'll September on the West Coast. So that'll be that tour. You can go to SteveMillerBand.com and look at touring for that. Uh, I have several bands of my own that I do around here on the Central Coast. Um, I'm playing next week uh, at a place in Pismo Beach. There's a place in Morro Bay that I play. Um, there are some clubs in Los Angeles. I just went down and saw the new write-off room, which just yeah. opened last week. A big band down there that my wife and I used to play in. That room what is really band? nice. Also, Herb Alpert's vibrato yeah. and, and you know, and uh, Brentwood is great, uh, or Bel Air, I should say. And then there's a place called Bogies out in Westlake. I've played all those. So there's some pretty decent clubs out here that I can play. We don't make a lot of money, you know. It's like you know, all these places are trying to pay their rent, you know, to and pay your employees and insurance and blah blah blah. California is very expensive, so unfortunately, the amount that we're getting paid nowadays to play live gigs around here is about the same money we used to make in the nineteen seventies. <laughs> yeah. Same amount, exactly. Right. You know, but with uh, you know, inflation not factored yeah. in. <laughs> I haven't I haven't been to the new write off room yet. Bill, the owner, I met him on a gig. I uh, he invited me to come out and book some dates at the old venue, but then they closed down. And the, I know the new one just opened up like a month ago, and I haven't checked it out yet. Well, the new one is great. He's got the sound dialed in. It's a little deeper, okay. so there's sound cushion. I mean, it's closer. Uh, like, the other one was just out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Right near Universal yeah. City. Uh, it's in Studio City, but it's just right up from Universal City and you know, the, the park and all that stuff. So uh, it's great. And I, I think he's going to be very successful with it. I, you know, I, I have a Fillmore tribute that I do with Bill Champlin uh, and his wife, Tamara, uh, from Sons of Champlin in Chicago and all this stuff. And we did it twice in L.A., one at Bogies and one at a place called B&L Saloon. And it was well received. Uh, I'd like to start booking it some more. Just trying to get it, in, you know, hooked up with all these other uh, places so it jives with my schedule because yeah. I've been available uh so um that'll be fun and that's really fun we do all the 
music for the Fillmore era, and we use musicians that played with bands that played the okay. Fillmore, including uh, Bill with Sons of Chaplin, of course, who played there all the time, along with Steve. So, but we could change the, the, the book and we could change the songs all the time because there were so many groups that played right. at the Fillmore over the years. We couldn't have a different show yeah. every time, which would be featured artists. So I'm really looking forward to getting that going. Um, and then I've got a, a True Fire uh, masterclass that I just did. And if you go to True Fire and look up Kenny Lee Lewis, it's called Rhythm Renaissance. Okay. I just teach basically rhythm guitar because everybody on there teaches yeah. lead. I want something different. So I came in with some tracks of bass and drums, and then I showed how you craft rhythm parts to, you know, marry and have a conversation with the bass oh, and that's drums, great. you know, that's great. And show different parts of layering, how to do that. Because, you know, really uh, the Steve Miller band gig, when I came on board in, in 81 as a guitar player was a rhythm yeah. gig. You know, I was taking the Boss Skaggs chair, which was the original rhythm guitar player for Miller. And, uh, you know, you just have to learn how to play rhythm. That's how you get hired on gigs is singing and playing rhythm. Lead guitar players are a dime a dozen. There's a million of them out there and they all pretty much sound the same. On which college they went to or which school, you know, and God bless them. I mean, there's some great players, but I mean, lead guitar playing is secondary to the purpose of what a hit Heritage Act is doing on the road. We're yes. replicating tracks and layering and parts mm -hmm. and things that fit together and dovetail. If you get a solo, it's just sort of like icing on the cake. Yeah. It's, you know, people are there for the songs. They're not there to hear you go, wee -de -wee -de -wee -de -wee -de. they're there to hear a hit record, you know, right. great singing with great harmonies, you know. So that was what I was trying to teach. So you can go on truefire.com and see that. I think the course is only like 30 bucks. Okay. You know, you know uh, tell your kids to go there. Yeah. And then um, I've got, you know, my YouTube channel, which has a lot of free lessons on it that I did during COVID. And I did interviews with a lot of big name people. Uh, those are fun to watch and, and just go on there. They're free and just cool. like, and follow me. Uh, I have my website, KennyLeeLewis.com. There's a, there's some activity on there, but I don't keep up with it as I, like I should yeah. I have a jazz guitar album. That's on Amazon. Okay. It's uh, a CD baby product. It's called new vintage. It's a jazz instrumental thing. It uh, my other persona, which okay. is okay, <laughs> nice. Playing a Herb Ellis one seventy five with yeah. flat with a wound G string. Okay, you know? so that's a whole other thing, kind of like a George Bensony product. And then I have a book that I sell. I'm actually starting to become a writer, and this is called Skeleton Dolls: Children of the Tower. You can get it on Amazon in either Kindle or a hard copy, and it is a sci-fi fantasy novel. Okay. So to go into that market too and it's been very well received and uh if you're interested go on and read the reviews it's an interesting concept about twins who speak in their own language when they were little if you google that it's called twin speak it's actually a real thing really and uh i suggest in my stephen king-esque dan brown-esque kind of style that this language has power it was the original language of god prior to the tower of babel in the okay. old because in the old testament it says we all spoke the same language at one sure. point this is that language I suggest, and it has yeah. to actually heal people and raise these girls, raise the dead. And of course, they're beautiful twin females, and so yeah. a lot of interesting parts of the book that you know make it interesting to all ages and all gen. And gen when did when did you get into uh, being an author? Well, I I was writing for Guitar Player magazine uh, for quite a while, doing articles and things for okay. art on there, you know, and. Uh, um, I uh, did a couple things for Smithsonian 
magazine, Smithsonian Native American magazine, because I have Native American heritage. That's why I was talking about the uh, the NAMI earlier. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of tied in with Indian country, and I, I go up to Canada and do events all the time with First Nations people. Um, so I did an article in one of their magazines. It was published. And, you know, I just started getting the idea that I'd like to become a writer. My father was a writer after he retired from the state, and it's kind of in my blood. Okay. And, uh, I've written a, a movie script. I've written, um, you know, quite a few novels, and I've written um, – I'm, I'm, I'm writing my biography, of course. But uh, but this series the, the, is a trilogy. This is just the first book of a trilogy called Children of the Tower, and I have the sequel written right now. But I put it out with some agents, and it, it involves some politics, and I think that they didn't want to touch politics. So I have another novel that's actually about fishing and rock and roll guys. Okay. It's called Sex, Fish, and Rock and Roll. Is that also sci-fi, or is that just kind of a fiction? This is actually a novel kind of about, written about me. Okay. It's been changed because it's pretty risque. There's a lot of explicit sex in it. But I think it'll sell because if you've looked at all the series that are big on TV right now, I mean, they're, I mean, these folks are making love in every freaking episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just rose my hand. Away. I got one of those, you know, because <laughs> you know, I wrote it when my kids were still living at home. I couldn't put it out, you know, but now I do it. They're all gone. <laughs> yeah, nice. <clears throat> so that's called Sex, Fish, and Rock and Roll. And that's what I'm going to be selling uh, to agents in the next couple of weeks. If I can get an agent, then I can make them look at this trilogy and maybe, you know, bring me on as a sci-fi writer. Cool. Man, that's great. It's good that you got so much going on. Kenny, thanks for being on, man. Really, really appreciate that. Thank you, man. Keep rocking, man. We'll see you in uh, your town soon with the Steve Miller Band. All right, all right, all right. That was my talk with Kenny Lee Lewis, uh, who has been crushing it with the Steve Miller Band for uh, like 40 years. Um, so many, so many great nuggets of just advice and perspective in uh, in what he has to say about career. Now, hearing about his base, the Franklin Founding Father Five, is what is what kind of how we started talking at the Nam Show, you know, and and hearing more about that base from him was super cool. Again, stop by the YouTube channel for the base yet, and that's where I will have some pictures up. Uh, there will be a link to that in the show notes. So wherever you are listening to this podcast, click on YouTube. Uh, and that will take you right to the YouTube version <laughs> of this interview where we'll have the, the graphics of the base and, and kind of the the process of him building it. Um, super cool story. Super cool story. And one of the most fascinating bases I've heard about. Uh so yes, thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Kenny, for uh, taking the time. And that's uh, that's about all I got for this one, folks. That's about all I got. If you are enjoying the Base Shed podcast, please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to it. And uh, I will catch you on the next one in a minute.